Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Great Lakes account for 84% of North America's surface freshwater and millions of people across the region depend on these lakes for water supplies, industry, travel, and recreation. In recent years, these lakes have seen a wide range of extremes from record high water levels to sudden sharp declines, and it has been concerning local residents and officials. Mark Terragrosa serves as the chief meteorologist for MLive.com in Michigan, and he's been closely following the water levels in recent years. We'll discuss what factors may be at play here and how these changes could impact local communities and ecosystems. Mark, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Fantastic subject we're covering today. Well, but I've got to ask you the question that I ask all guests when we start Weather Geeks. How did you become a Weather Geek? Uh, probably, I'm guessing we're about maybe the same age, probably about the same as you, the 1970s. Okay. Uh, 1974, snowstorm, Thanksgiving snowstorm. I grew up toward the Chicago area. 1974, we had, uh, we had uh, well, the terrible Tuesday outbreak of tornadoes, 1974. I was playing baseball in the Chicago area and we had baseball size hail. Then oh, wow. uh, that summer, my parents brought us down toward Kentucky where my mom's family's from and the devastation was just incredible. 75, we had uh, a Thanksgiving snowstorm. Listen to this, we're going to our family farm in Southern Illinois and it's snowing like crazy. We have to stop at a truck stop in Effingham. I said, dad, Look over there at that table. I saw a guy's back of his head. I said, that looks like Muhammad Ali. It oh, was. Wow. It really was him? Him. It snowed in at the truck stop about 60 miles north of our family farm. You know, this was in the days when he was the best in the oh, world. Sure. The greatest, um, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 1976, we had an uh, incredible ice storm. I don't know where you're from, but if you remember that through the Great Lakes, uh, inch to two inches of ice accumulation, blizzard of 78. Chicago, we had the blizzard of 79, and I was hooked. And then the 80s went kind of quiet. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that, you know, around sixth grade for me. And so that would have been the seventies for me as well. So very typical story. Let me give you a little bit of Mark's background before we really dive into this discussion on Great Lakes water levels. Excuse me. Mark's the chief meteorologist at MLive.com in Michigan and chief meteorologist at FarmerWeather.com. And he has a bachelor's degree, a BS in meteorology from Northern Illinois University, a very great program with a couple of our alum now professors there at NIU. So shout out to Dr. Walker Ashley and Dr. Uh, Victor Gensini, who are a former alum of my program at the University of Georgia. Mark, tell us about MLive.com for listeners that aren't familiar with. Okay. MLive is a, it's a, it's a newspaper group that 
you know, decided in about 2008 that newspapers probably aren't going to be the big way that people get their information. So they they formed a a conglomerate of local news sites. And there are a lot of MLives around the country. So you might be familiar with NJ.com, New Jersey, you know, for New Jersey. And the parent company owns that one. And that's kind of the MLive of New Jersey. We have AL.com uh, for Alabama. That's a very popular one. Um, we had uh, New, New Orleans, NOLA.com, Oregon.com, Cleveland.com. So MLive is uh, Michigan's largest local news site. I was doing three of their weather pages, the Bay City Times, Flint Journal, Saginaw News. And then in 2012, I called them up. I said, hey, let's do this weather thing online. And they said, online? Really? Weather online? Is it that important? I said, yes, it is. You'll find out. So um, I went from TV over the last 30 years to um, now sometimes I do the weather with shorts on instead of a suit and tie, <laughs> you know, so. Oh, and that's, I think that's right. I think we've seen a proliferation of sort of weather on uh, online vehicles and so forth. We, um, you know, had had some folks on from Space Weather. Uh, space City Weather, I believe, is what they call it down in Houston. And, of course, the outstanding folks in work at Capital Weather Gang. So I, I think yeah. you have kind of picked up on an area that's emerging as a as an outlet for information and, and warnings and, and just overall education about weather and climate. Yeah. Tell us well, as, broad, as, as broadcast meteorologists, we always were giving the weather based on a time in broadcast. And as you know, weather and weather data doesn't have a time now. So when we have a storm and we have breaking news or we have uh, information that we want to tell people, we want to tell them at 1.30 in the afternoon or 3.30 or 9 at night or 2 in the morning, not 6, 11, and 5 in the morning again. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your history and background as a broadcaster. Where, where, where'd you do broadcast? Um, I've been on the Great Lakes all of my life except for two years. Uh, so I, I started at a consulting firm in Chicago called Murray and Treadle. And then I went to my first broadcasting job was out in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That was my first time ever away from the Great Lakes. Uh, that was odd. Iowa's a great place, it's a great weather place, uh, severe weather. You know, for a meteorologist, it's interesting. Snowstorms and severe weather, uh, and some of those sometimes in the same day. Then I went to Traverse City, Michigan, so I was back on uh, a Great Lake. I always tell people I've had a Great Lake a couple miles to my northeast all my life, except for two uh, two years of my life, and you can get a smell. I'm almost convinced if you're a Great Lakes person, you could probably sit on a beach and close your eyes if you didn't, if somebody took you there and you didn't know where you were. I think a person could hear Lake Michigan or hear Lake Huron or hear Lake Superior or Lake Erie, and the smells too, the marine layer comes in. Some people will say, oh, wow, does that stink? I grew up in it. In, on the north side of Chicago, and it's it's like, you know, it's like going into your grandma's house. In you know, it it didn't smell real good because it was kind of an old smell. But you go back there today, and you still remember that smell. So uh, Traverse City. Then I went down to the Flint Saginaw Bay City Market in Michigan. I was in Green Bay for a couple of years, and then back to Flint Saginaw Bay City. Yeah. So uh, that was actually a question that I wanted to ask you, sort of about your experience living 
uh, on the Great Lakes. Uh, what are some of the unique weather features of the Great Lakes? I mean, I'm thinking lake effect snows, algal blooms, lake, uh, lake shore flood events. Um, tell us about sort of some of the fascinating and unique weather sort of typical of that region. Okay. Well, the lake effect is really fascinating. And most people know about the big picture of lake effect. But now when you when you get into it for 30 years, you see these small scale events. And wow, how did I ever forecast in 1992? You know, <laughs> lake effect. I can remember, I can remember, um, and you've been in meteorology, you've made forecasts, you know, sometimes you just feel like Mother Nature is pointing at you and throwing you a curve and saying, you know what, we're going to cause a rainstorm to form on your picnic just to show you I'm still boss. Well, we actually had a a radar, one of the first radars up in Traverse City. It was a small market, but a guy developed to stop the radar. And it showed this circular area of lake effect snow coming down Grand Traverse Bay. It stopped with, it got into downtown Traverse City and it snowed about 10 inches in three hours on a sunny day forecast. Wow. And I saw that in early nineties. I said, how are we ever going to be able to forecast these things? They're going to just burn us every once in a while. Now with the modeling that we have, those show those. We learned about the mesoscale, the lake-induced mesoscale vortexes, you know. And now I've seen them enough that I recognize the synoptic or the overall pattern where I can kind of forecast the possibility of that a couple of days in advance. Seiches have been amazing. And Tell that's us about um, Seiches, because I think that's one that many of our Weather Geeks listeners may not be familiar with. Yeah, it's a, it's a Great Lakes thing. Um, it's a it's a big wave. It's a the bathtub effect, a sloshing of a wave on the Great Lakes, and the water can come up you know, three, four, five, I, I don't know exactly what the record sash is, um, but basically what happens is a thunderstorm will come across, a typical sash, a thunderstorm will come across, say, northern Lake Michigan and not hit the southern half of the lake, and it'll put out this big wind and this big wave or a pressure difference, and it'll kind of slash the water to one side, maybe over toward Milwaukee, Waukegan, Chicago, and then it'll slash the water back over to the other side. There have been deaths. In the 50s, there was a station Muskegon that came up onto the beach uh, and over the pier. And there was one at Navy Pier in Chicago, too, I believe, in the 50s. And that is one thing that actually we could still use. We could use a SASH warning system um, in the Great Lakes. We just heard that here on Weather Geeks. Um, we're talking with Mark Terragrossa. And Mark just gave us a little breaking news. And I love that. We don't have a SASH warning system? Not really. No. It happens so fast. Um, no. What, what do we need? What is that? What would that be comprised of, in your opinion? Well, like all warning systems that we've developed, it would be faster communication. It, it, it would first be, you know, just like the tornado warning systems started, uh, you know, I, I see a tornado out in my farm field. And then as they got better, the communication got back to the weather service and to the media to disseminate it. That would be the first thing is we would need to know about it the instant it happens by a boat, by a city, by a beach. And then and then it would need to be disseminated out 
within seconds. Cause as you know, waves travel very quickly. Um, so it couldn't be something that, you know, in an hour or two, we will see a say she would be in the matter of minutes, probably. Yeah. That's a good talking with Mark Tiragrosa here. Now this unique environment, the great lakes, I'm, I'm reading some statistics here prepared by our Austin production staff says that the great lakes are one of the world's largest surface freshwater ecosystems. What prompted your research into water levels in the great lakes? How, how'd you get into that? Uh, they go hand in hand with weather, and everybody's fascinated by the Great Lakes. Again, if you live in the Great Lakes, you're we call ourselves water people. You know, it just feels weird to be out in the land and not have water close to you. So it's just a fascinating subject that as the scientist of a TV station or a scientist of MLive, I'm also the chief meteorologist at farmerweather.com. That's my own site actually. And it deals all with ag weather because I feel like the ag weather uh, has gotten been forgotten about actually as farmers need more information you know, the ag weather has gone downhill too, I kind of believe, as other forecasts have gone up. So the so the lake levels and all the lakes, it's just interacts uh, great with uh, weather. I'll give you one stat. When I started um, working with the Army Corps of Engineers, they had some great scientists there that gave me some just, just fun facts that people like. One inch of water on Lake Michigan and Lake Huron is... 800 billion with a B gallons. Wow. One inch of water. Wow. That's and where this came in was, you know, the, the lake levels always go up and down. And the lake levels, 2012, 2013, very dry, went down about four feet. Well, most people were convinced that people are stealing our Great Lakes water. They're pumping it out through Chicago. They're filling up the Mississippi. The bottled water companies are taking it. They're shipping it overseas, all this stuff. I did, so I put the math numbers to it. The bottled water industry does pull water out of the Great Lakes. It's worth, if I can remember this correctly, it's worth about one fourteen thousandth of an inch on Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. One rainstorm, a large scale rainstorm, can put a half inch or inch of water back into the lake overnight. Right. You know, so one fourteen thousandth of an inch is not a big deal. So I had to start doing the math to to uh, convince readers of MLive, FarmerWeather.com, that it's it's weather that really drives the ups and downs of the lake levels. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Mark Torregrossa about weather, 
Great Lakes and water levels. And, you know, you just heard him talking about water and, you know, it takes me back to fourth grade and we learned about the water cycle. There's a sort of finite amount of water in our system cycling around through evaporation and condensation, precipitation and so forth. And your point about weather and sort of the hydrometeorology, if you will, the rainfall and so forth is so key. I want to read a quote that you wrote in a March article on the Great Lakes. You said, the Great Lakes aren't in just normal water decline mode. What did you mean by that? Okay, so there's a cyclicality, a seasonality to the Great Lakes water levels, you know, so you got to figure out what's normal first. So the Great Lakes typically um, have a low water level in about February. And then we start our spring rains and our snow melt and the Great Lakes water levels start to go up. They usually peak in July, usually, and then they start to go back down again toward February. So we can say an average March or an average February should have so much fall of the water. And right now we're inching away from record highs because we're going down instead of say two inches a month in February, we went down three inches a month. So we're, we're, we're getting some distance from the record highs, which was the problem in the last few years on a lot of the Great Lakes. You know, this time last year, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, were at a record high water level. Right now, they're 11 inches below that same that level of last year. So they're distancing, they're coming back down toward the average, and you know it, you're, you're you know, into the atmospheric scientists, science too. Averages are very deceiving because averages are just an average of a lot of abnormalities and deviations. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I, you know, I, I talk about that all, all of the time uh, when we're talking about various things in weather and climate. The average can be a bit deceiving. It's probably the extremes and the frequency is what, really what we want to look at. Uh, I want to kind of go back. We've done you know shout out, by the way, to our, our Weather Geeks production team. Uh, you hear me on this podcast every week, but the production team we have is just amazing. So I, I wanted to pause and give them a shout out because they, they provide some excellent research. Uh, about January 2019, you published an article about how the lakes gained a mind-boggling amount of water in the first few days of April. Uh, you said that some lakes gained as much as 500 billions of, uh, billion gallons in that short span. What do you attribute that to, uh, that, that, in that particular event? He- heavy uh, precipitation. That was so it was of- rain. Yes, it was one of the, and you know, at that same time, we may have the snow melt coming into it also. But uh, if I remember correctly, in that situation, we had just a very large uh, storm system that encompassed, you know, most of, say, one drainage basin, say, Michigan Huron drainage basin. you know, and it sends the lake up again. So just remember, you know, one inch of water is 800 billion gallons. That sounds like a lot. But when you get one inch of water over all of Wisconsin, all of Michigan, all of Ontario, you're talking a trillion gallons of water in a couple of days time. The amount of water in the atmosphere is just mind boggling, you know, and then we got to get into our climate is changing. Yeah, well, I was just about to go there because I wanted to know if you're seeing any trends in sort of the frequency and intensity of these water level changes. 
Definitely. Well, the thing on the water levels is where 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 an increased climate uh, change. Still, me as a meteorologist, I want to call it global warming because that's generally what is happening, you know. And I know the public has a real hard time with Michigan April's turning colder as the globe is warming. But it, let's just just get it back to the globe is warming, and we know as meteorologists what is warmth, energy, and what does energy turn into in the atmosphere? It turns into precipitation. A lot Cla of time. Clausius Clapeyron relationship. As we have water, more or warmer temperatures, uh, there's a capacity for more water vapor in the atmosphere, and that becomes okay. rainfall. I, I I forget that because that was in the 80s, but yeah. I know. Basic, you, but no, I'm just stating basic yes, physics yes. is explaining exactly yes. what you just said. Yes. So, but also, as we warm up and it doesn't rain, evaporation goes up quickly. So for me, what climate change is doing in the Great Lakes is volatility of the water level. So, you know, if we have an, a historic average water level and maybe a fluctuation over the course of a decade or two of a foot above and below that, now we're seeing, you, you know, a classic example is 2012, we were four feet below the average and record levels and now last year we were four feet above and in the rainfall 2018 to 2020 rainfall and heavy snowfall winters by the way last 10 of 15 in the great lakes more heavier than normal precipitation whether it's rain or snow we had the fastest rise ever that in recorded history back to 1918 a problem we get into is with some peers, they say, well, you know, 10,000 years ago, the Great Lakes was, you know, 50 feet higher. And uh, 100,000 years ago, it was all dried up. Yes, it was, but we don't live in 10,000 uh, time periods. We live in 50 and 100 year time periods. And so we'll see more volatility. We'll see more up, more down. We've put a lot more people on the water. People have more money now. They want to move to the Great Lakes, to the shoreline. Oh, I finally had my American dream. I got my uh, mansion on Lake Michigan. Here's where the beach is. And they feel like the Great Lakes owe them that same water level. So, but I, yeah. well, you're, from what you just said, though, it's clearly more volatile. What, Mark, can we do about it? I mean, in other words, you see the volatility, you see the extremities, uh, but you still see development in these areas. And the same thing, the same sort of phenomena is happening on sort of ocean coastal areas, too, even as we know hurricanes are becoming more intense and so forth. What do you do? What do we do? Well, I think you got to we have to realize that severe weather is only severe when it hits your house and you only believe that it will be that bad the moment it hits your house. Um, and so I think we got to realize that, yeah, the engineers can say, well, the lake will only co come up three feet. You might want to double it if you're going to build something close to the water, you know, and will it go past that? I don't know because of all the enormous potential for the atmosphere to produce weather that we've never seen before as climate changes. So we got to we got to back off 
of the developments. We First off, we have to go into it knowing something that not me as a meteorologist learned, but builder, construction builder friends of, of mine taught me. Water always wins. Yes. It's the, it's the strongest force. It, you know? it, it is. I, I think about an old comedy routine I heard from Richard Pryor, I think, a long, long time ago. And he was like, you, you can't really stop water when it decides it wants to go. Exactly. Exactly. So so I think we got to realize that water always wins. It's going to go up and down. What can we do about it? We can remove, uh, reduce our influence on the atmosphere. I think you might find this interesting. I talked to a hundred scientists about Great Lakes water levels. These were Great Lakes scientists. They knew 20 times more about the Great Lakes than I did. But they wanted me in there because they have to write papers and these universities, you know, kind of put a scorecard on you. How many people are reading your paper online and is it is it worth all the funding and whatnot? So they wanted me to come in and tell them, how do you get people to read your scientific thing? What do you have to do this and that? So I said, you know what? I've got this group of 100 scientists. I want to take a poll. I want to see if you believe in climate change because every stat that we hear in the in the general media says 95% of scientists believe the climate is changing. And I said, well, I've never been asked and I've never asked anybody, so I asked this 100. I don't like the words climate change, I'll be honest. I So I wrote out the sentence, is the climate changing at an accelerated pace? Because the climate has always been changing. You know, spinning sphere of water, tilted axis, wobbles, bonfire in the sky. Is the, is the climate changing at an accelerated pace due to human activity? That was my statement. And just a yes or no, I put the page in front of them in this room. I said, please, it's it's uh, anonymous. Answer it. Just see what we come up with. You know what I came up with on percentage? Not, yeah, but I don't know. But I, by the way, that 95 percent is usually climate scientists, though, not just average scientists. I'm curious to see what you came up with. 95%. So it's still the same, whether you're talking to... Then I said, all right, at least my little, uh, you know, unscientific poll of 100 scientists that were in the know, you know, these weren't just, uh, you know, these weren't, uh, you know, average scientists. These were Great Lakes scientists. These, these are Great Lakes scientists. So yeah. I, this is really useful what you did because, I, you know, yeah, you're right. The, the media often sort of says that 95% number, but it actually, they draw that from peer-reviewed studies and the scientific literature. And they've usually sampled climate scientists that have published on climate science. So I'm at, okay. that doesn't often get reported. But, but, what you did confirms that that's even a broader number among, among the sort of broader scientists. So I really appreciate that you shared that. Right. Yeah. Great. So you know, let's, let me take a break, Mark, and then we'll come right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with Mark Torregrosa about Great Lakes water levels. Now, another thing that I mentioned briefly when we started this podcast is algal blooms. Now, I don't, I don't, I didn't realize it was such, I guess I did hear something about algal bloom problems. I know in 
parts of Florida where I did some of my undergraduate work, uh, it's a really big challenge. How big of a problem is algal blooms uh, in the Great Lakes and, and what's causing them and are, are they getting worse? Um, Lake Erie has the worst problem with it and it's a significant problem. The other Great Lakes, not so much because there's a good flow and a good motion of water and they're deeper, um, but we do see uh, other small scale algal blooms on Lake Michigan, Lake Huron. I haven't heard about it on Lake Superior. Uh, Lake Ontario has a pretty good flow. What, you know, what the agronomists and the people that study the nutrients going in say is that it's um, fertilizers um, and also other phosphorus things, you know, that the, all the people moving closer closer to the uh, lakes. And so, yes, they are. And then it's weather driven, light wind and heat uh, supports them. So if you get a stagnant upper level dome of high pressure, not much weather, say a droughty pattern, then that sun is beating down and the algae loves to bloom and it explodes it to the point that, you know, one out of three years now, you can look at a satellite picture of Lake Erie and see a large green gooey mass, uh, very similar to the Lake Okeechobee thing and the and possible red tide causes in Florida. Um, you know, and so they're they're trying to really evaluate it, try to forecast it, and try to minimize. I think the, I, I work with a lot of farmers and the farmer is a scapegoat a lot in this, but a farmer does not waste fertilizer because fertilizer costs money too. Sure, and sure. farmers have to make profits. So, so they put the right amount on, but then you get a five inch rain in a warmer atmosphere. Uh, that's one thing that we should talk about is that the warmth has shown an increased one inch rain days in the state of Michigan for as, as you go North uh, the UP now is having four more one-inch rain days per per year than they did, say, 20 years ago. You get these heavy rains, heavy runoff, and then it gets into the Great Lakes eventually. Yeah. And you mentioned satellite images showing these gooey green blobs. Another thing we see on the Great Lakes with satellite images is ice cover. Uh, what, are, what are you noticing about changes in ice cover and sort of seasonality of it? Ice is made by cold, and it the winters are trending warmer. So if you average, uh, you know, again, we've got a lot of variations from year to year, but if you average it over time, the Great Lakes ice cover is being reduced. You know, I like to use a, uh, you know, like a five-year uh, moving average, uh, you know, to see the differences. Because then again, 2012, we had near record ice cover. And that's real hard for folks to grasp. Wait a minute. Everybody's telling us the globe is warming and we just had a winter that we haven't had since 1976. We must cancel this whole plan. Uh, you know, and no, it's just a, a quirky thing. The other thing that I, I have a hard time getting across is that, um, you remember the lava lamp? Oh, yeah. 
you, you yeah turn I, I it just on saw one in the mall the other day actually the back yeah you turn it turn it on and the and the red blob starts going up right and then it gets the top and it breaks apart and it's going in this cycle and then all of a sudden one of the blobs coming up hits another blob coming down just wrong and it disrupts the whole cycle for a while and then it gets going again. And that's what uh, we're seeing in the Great Lakes is that as the polar region is warming, our March and Aprils are actually getting colder. While our summers are getting a little bit warmer, our falls have gotten vastly warmer. Our falls are incredible. Um, and if you ever wanna go to the Great Lakes, I tell people if you want a summer vacation, first week of August in Michigan, or about the last week or first week, uh, last week of September, first week in October. Just, you know, then you get the fall feel for it. And the winters are getting warmer also. Uh, here's a good example. I work with farmers when I moved to the Saginaw area. I'm a big gardener. I said, hey, I'm from across the lake. Frost is different. When is our first average frost? So I know here in the Saginaw area. They told me September 26th was about, you know, last week of September was, about the first time we get a frost. Now, last five years, we haven't had a frost in the Saginaw area before October 15th. Our hard freeze used to be about mid-October. We've gone the last few years uh, almost to Thanksgiving before we've had a hard freeze. Yeah, these are the types of things that I think really can resonate with people that maybe still have some scalp skepticism about climate change. Just look at things like what you were just talking about. I'm a gardener as well vegetable garden and dealing with that right now here as we tape this in the, the last day of March. Uh, you know, I've already started some seedlings, but we're about to have 30 degree temperatures tomorrow night uh, as a pretty strong cold front is barreling through today. Um, but in general, our sort of last date for the freeze essentially has been creeping back into sort of March and so forth, where it probably was in April before. So, it's great yeah. for gardeners. It's great yeah. for us down here in the South and, and for those of us that garden, but certainly has some, some huge, bigger problems. Mark, this has been an amazing, amazing conversation. And I got to give you a shout out for being the first ever weather geeks to talk about lava lamps on the podcast. So big <laughs> shout out to you on that. But before we go, let me, do, let me do my geek of the week. This time for the geek of the week, we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Natalie Allen. Natalie is a middle school student in Colorado who is very interested in weather and watches the Weather Channel daily. She has even presented a weather report on TV as a kid caster. Hey, Natalie, keep that up. I love it. I was a weather geek at that age, too. And we hope to see you on TV one day. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate of our Geek of the Week, be sure to follow our social media pages. Mark, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you so much. Where can people follow you on Twitter or social media? I know you have a couple of websites you want to share as well. Yep, they can uh, they can follow me on my personal Facebook page. I allow followers there and I pretty much keep it to weather and an occasional, hey, look, I'm on vacation here drinking a, a beverage. And um, so Mark Torregross, a personal Facebook page um, and then, uh, you know, farmerweather.com and MLive. Dot com Definitely. If they go to MLive.com and search Torregrosa, then they'll see the page where all my posts are and uh, a lot of people like that. And hey, thank you for doing this great service. We need to continue to get all of the word out about the atmosphere and how it affects us. 
Well, we appreciate your insight and thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. It's been another episode of the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and we'll see you next time. 